Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, murder, and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Lloyd Markham watched as a golden sun rose over Harvard's campus on May 28, 1995. Now that final exams were over, it seemed like everyone else was sleeping in. Lloyd liked the peace. As a cool breeze blew past him, it was like all the stress of the previous semester just melted away. But things didn't stay calm for long. Suddenly, an ear-splitting scream cut through the quiet from across the courtyard. Lloyd jumped up just in time to see a woman running out of the Dunster House dormitory. She scrambled towards him, yelling out in pain. Lloyd could see streaks of blood running down her arm, staining her pajamas and splattering the lush grass. She fell to the ground at his feet, crying and begging him for help. She said her friend was in trouble. She might already be dead. Lloyd ran to call the police. The woman watched him go with watery eyes, praying it wasn't too late. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. Last week, we discussed the relationship between Sinadu Tedessa and Trang Fuang Ho, two young immigrants who roomed together at Harvard from 1993 to 1995. While at school, Sinadu struggled with undiagnosed depression, social isolation, and eventually violent rage. When Trang told Sinadu she wanted to move out in April of 1995, Sinadu obsessed over what she saw as Trang's betrayal and plotted her revenge. This week, we'll see how Sinadu unleashed three years of pent-up rage and committed one of the most violent crimes in the history of Harvard. We'll also discuss the way Sinadu and Trang's families dealt with their grief and how the university came under fire for its role in the tragedy. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Nineteen-year-old Sinadu Tadessa lay perfectly still in her twin bed, staring at the ceiling. She watched as warp shadows danced across its surface, then turned to look at the clock. It was nearing 3 a.m. on Sunday, May 28, 1995. Sinadu hadn't slept at all. On the other side of the dormitory, her roommate, 20-year-old Trang Ho, snored. Although Trang's best friend Tao was a silent sleeper, Sinidu knew Tao was there too. She rolled onto her back and stretched her arms out, wondering how it would feel to have someone sleeping next to her. Sinidu knew that if she went through with her plan that morning, she would never get a chance to find out. There would be no graduation, no medical school, no friends, no love. But she wouldn't let herself mourn, she told herself she wasn't really losing any of those things because she never had them to begin with. What she was about to do wasn't about loss. It was about freedom and vengeance. Or at least that's what Sinadu thought. Before I continue with her psychology, please note I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In a 1992 article, psychiatrist Peter Marzuk proposed a set of typologies used to categorize violent perpetrators who commit murder-suicides. Sinidu's motivations are most in line with what he termed the jealous paranoid type. According to Dr. George B. Palermo, who studied jealous paranoid patients, these individuals often see their victim as an extension of themselves. They become incredibly jealous when the object of their fixation, in this case, Trang, wants to break off the relationship. This can feel to the perpetrator, not just like the loss of a friend or partner, but like the loss of a piece of themselves. In this way, Dr. Palermo argues, the crime becomes a kind of extended suicide. The perpetrator may not see themselves as a murderer because the crime is all about them. Sinadu never quite allowed Trang to be her own person. She wanted to own her roommate entirely, to have all of Trang's affection for herself. When she couldn't get that, Sinadu became angry and obsessive. Trang asking to room with someone else the next year was the final straw. Sinadu started to see herself as a victim of Trang's imagined cruelty and sought to destroy both herself and her roommate.
Sinidu waited until sunrise to finally get out of bed and recover the knife and noose she'd stashed away the night before. She might have been waiting to see if Tao would wake up early and head out, leaving her alone with Trang. Or perhaps Sinidu was nervous, putting off the crime until the last moment. Either way, sometime before 8 a.m., Tao was awoken by the beeping sound of Sinidu's alarm. Tao groaned and nudged Trang awake. Rubbing her eyes, Trang told Tao that the alarm belonged to Sinidu. Both young women closed their eyes to go back to sleep. Tao heard Sinidu walk into the bathroom, then the sound of running water. While she drifted back to sleep, Sinidu tied her noose to the rod holding the shower curtain. Once Trang started to snore again, Sinidu slipped out of the bathroom and crept towards her roommate's bed. She tried to be quiet, but she wasn't quite sneaky enough. Her footsteps woke both Tao and Trang, who opened their eyes to see Sinidu, jaw set, eyes glazed over, holding a five-inch hunting knife over Trang's chest. Trang didn't make a sound. She couldn't tell whether or not she was dreaming. Then, Sinidu lunged, and everything seemed to happen in slow motion. Trang held up her arms to block the blade, all without saying a word. She was so shocked, she couldn't scream. Tao tried to kick the knife out of Sinidu's grip, but caught her foot on its edge. There was so much adrenaline coursing through her body that she barely felt the cut. She jerked upward and grabbed the blade with her bare palm, hoping to wrestle it from Sinidu's grasp. But Sinidu managed to pull the knife out of Tao's closed fist, slicing straight through her hand. Blood spattered everywhere as Tao recoiled. Then, with a blank expression on her face, Sinidu brought the knife down on Trang. She stabbed her repeatedly as Tao scrambled to her feet. Unable to stop Sinidu on her own, she ran out of the room to find help. But as soon as a door swung shut behind her, Tao realized she made a terrible mistake. The doors in Dunster House automatically locked whenever they were closed. She had meant to find help in the hallway, then save Trang. But now she couldn't get back inside. Sinidu and Trang were locked in their dorm room together, all on their own. Tao sprinted through the halls of Dunster House, screaming for help. When no one answered her, she ran out to the courtyard, where she found Lloyd Markham. With shaky hands, Lloyd phoned the campus police. While Tao received medical care for her stab wounds, Harvard authorities approached Trang and Sinidu's dorm room with their guns drawn. Almost immediately, they were greeted by a horrific sight. Just inside the door lay Trang's mutilated body, lying face up on the floor. She'd been stabbed 45 times in the face, neck, and chest. Even after sustaining such extensive injuries, she had been able to stand and stumble towards the exit before collapsing. Officers swarmed inside checking every corner, worried that Sinidu was just waiting to resume her attack, but she was nowhere to be found in the bedroom. The only place to hide was the bathroom, which police discovered had been barricaded shut. They forced their way inside to find Sinidu, 
hanging from the noose she tied to the shower rod. Police holstered their weapons and stood quiet for a moment, paralyzed by shock and horror. The crime seemed incomprehensible. It was the first murder between two students in the university's history. After cordoning off the crime scene, the officers made plans to deliver the news to the young women's families. Because Trang's mother lived close by, two police officers and one of Trang's friends, Hung Mai, drove to Medford to tell her in person. As they pulled up to Trang's mother's house, Hung's stomach sank. She was there to be a translator, but even speaking of Trang's death made her feel like she had a hand in it. Right now, she knew Trang's mother was blissfully unaware of what had happened. When Hung told her the news, it would be like killing Trang all over again. She looked down as the officers knocked on the door, clasping her hands over her stomach as if to protect herself. Trang's mother answered immediately. The police were quiet for a moment, waiting for Hung to speak. Hung took a deep breath and told Trang's mother there had been an accident. Her daughter was dead. Trang's mother crumpled to the floor. She sobbed, repeating over and over that it couldn't be possible. There had to be a mistake. She even grabbed her keys and made to leave the house, intent on going to pick up her daughter from school to prove she was all right. Hung had to stop her from leaving. She repeated what she'd said before, the act of translation feeling like one of active cruelty. Finally, a look of desolate grief washed over the face of Trang's mother. She turned away from her front door and dragged her feet toward her couch, where she collapsed, unable to speak. Delivering the news to Sinadu's family was more complicated. Harvard police contacted her cousins in Brookline, but they asked the university not to notify her mother and father. In Ethiopia, news of a death is supposed to be delivered by a relative in person in the morning. It's unclear exactly when, but Harvard did eventually get in touch with Sinadu's parents. The first thing her father did when he learned of his daughter's death was thank university officials for the opportunities they gave her. Meanwhile, rumors about the crime tore through the halls of Dunster House, spreading across campus and throughout the country. When Neb Talahun, a fellow Ethiopian Harvard student who went to high school with Sinadu, heard the news, he immediately boarded a plane home. Neb knew he had been the closest thing Sinadu had to a friend in Cambridge. He didn't want to answer any questions. He just wanted to mourn. As he flew away, police dove headfirst into their investigation, and journalists swarmed the campus to report on the crime. Up next, the truth behind the crime comes out, and Harvard comes under fire. Listeners, I have a surprising treat for you. You know you can find love in a bar or on an app. Why not a podcast? In Blind Dating, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Every Wednesday, YouTuber and host Tara Michelle introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. 
Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio finds all the sweetness and awkwardness of a first date, minus the distraction of appearances. But once our hopeful single chooses their match, the cameras are turned on. And it's either butterflies or goodbye. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After a shocking murder-suicide took place in a Harvard dormitory on May 28, 1995, university officials struggled to get the situation under control. They notified the families of 20-year-old Trang Ho and 19-year-old Sinadu Tadessa that both young women were dead. Sinadu's violence seemed impossible to explain until police began their investigation. Officers soon discovered that Sinadu delivered a foreboding letter to the Crimson almost a week before the crime, which had included a black and white photograph of herself. Unfortunately, nobody at the Crimson had recognized the photo at the time. Since she hadn't left a signature, the students wrote the message off as a strange prank and didn't report it. Police next turned to Sinadu's diaries to understand what had happened. Her writings revealed the inner life of a young woman struggling with undiagnosed and untreated mental illness. She was isolated from everyone except Trang, who simply by proximity became the target of Sinadu's jealousy, obsession, and rage. The motivation of the crime became undeniable. Sinadu, simultaneously depressed and obsessed, sought revenge and self-annihilation. But it was also clear that Sinadu's violence wasn't altogether unpredictable. Authorities discovered that she had sought on-campus counseling services and received inadequate mental health care. According to Dr. Elizabeth Al Breed, the director of consultation at Harvard's Mental Health Services, the university's psychological care suffered when budget cuts made long-term psychotherapy impractical. As a result, the service was forced to focus on short-term adjustment issues instead and referred students who required more intensive care to off-campus resources. But Sinadu was an international student from an impoverished country. She had no health insurance, no work visa, and very little money. Getting off-campus psychotherapy wasn't an option, and the monthly meetings she had with her university counselor, Dr. Powell, were insufficient. Although she'd been seeing Dr. Powell for over a year, their short sessions didn't allow time for real psychological breakthroughs. According to Dr. Randolph Catlin Jr., director of Harvard's Mental Health Services, doctors believed that Sinadu was being seen because she wanted help learning how to relate to people. Even Harvard's counselors seemed unaware of the extent of Sinadu's depression and psychotic jealousy. 
Sinadu knew she couldn't handle her psychological struggles on her own, so she reached out to people who should have helped her, and they didn't. Harvard police knew how bad the situation looked. Any crime, but especially a premeditated murder-suicide, was terrible for the school's reputation. Despite uncovering evidence that the university had egregiously failed to save two students, authorities tried to hide the information to preserve Harvard's image. Unfortunately for them, officers were required to submit reports to the district attorney's office. Through a Public Records Act claim, the case file became publicly available. Magazines and newspapers all over the country jumped to report on the salacious story. Harvard University, with all its resources and prestige, failed to stop a murderer. The accusations caused the university to turn inward, doing everything it could to dodge accusations of negligence. They responded to all questions about Sinadu's mental health treatment and signs leading up to the crime with the same answer. That information is confidential. Even if Harvard employees did want to speak to the press, they were required to go through the university's news office, which had a reputation for canceling interviews in order to do so. The dean of Harvard College, Harry Lewis, went so far as to tell faculty that no one should talk to the media at all. He warned them to be especially wary of reporters from The New Yorker, who were particularly persistent. Melanie Thernstrom, author of the 1997 book Halfway Heaven, Diary of a Harvard Murder, was one such New Yorker journalist who attempted to report the story. When she called Harvard's dean of admissions for an interview, he told her, everybody's looking for a villain and we don't want to be it. Unable to learn anything directly from the university, Melanie turned to assistant district attorney Martin Murphy. He responded saying, our job is only to look at the crime and confirm that it was indeed a murder-suicide and who the killer was. To Melanie and to the Harvard students and staff affected by the tragedy, responses like these were worse than unsatisfying. Certainly, Sinadu's hands had brought down the knife, but they were also the ones that had written letters, begging for companionship, and called Harvard's counseling office for help. The crime felt too awful to be just one person's responsibility. But according to statements made by numerous Harvard officials, Sinadu kept her psychological struggles a complete secret. Professors and advisors alike said Sinadu had always been quiet and shy, and that her anxiety near the end of the term had been easily explained away by her upcoming final exams. Shortly after the incident, Carl Lehm, a Dunster House official and academic advisor, held a televised press conference. During the event, he focused on how difficult the crime had been for him personally, emphasizing that he was completely unaware of any problems between Sinadu and Trang. He had apparently conveniently forgotten that mere months before being murdered, Trang had attempted to get a new roommate because she and Sinadu weren't getting along. Few people believed Leem's testimony. Harvard clearly hadn't fostered an environment of openness and accountability, 
and outlets like The Crimson, The New York Times, and The New Yorker exposed the university's failings to a massive audience. Perhaps in response to this scrutiny, Harvard held a small service of prayers and remembrances for Sinidu and Trang. The memorial was quick and unsatisfying. Neither young woman was even named aloud. When referring to Sinidu and Trang, Reverend Peter Gomes, Harvard's university minister, said, For all that was good in these girls, Lord, bless them. For the forces of evil beyond their control, Lord, forgive them. The reverend put forth a simple, easy-to-digest explanation that absolved all parties. In his scenario, Sinadu, overcome by evil beyond her control, was more of a victim than a perpetrator. It also meant Harvard's failure to intervene hadn't been negligence, but rather innocent ignorance. Melanie Thernstrom, still reporting on the case for The New Yorker, wasn't convinced. She thought Harvard had failed to intervene, but she also saw Sinadu as an active agent of violence, not just a vessel for evil. She was puzzled by quotations published in the New York Times, in which Sinadu's father said his daughter never gave him any indication that she was unhappy at Harvard. He told reporters that as a child, Sinadu never got angry, never lost her temper, and was never depressed. The inconsistency between Sinadu's internal experience and the way others perceived her was striking. Her inner world was all darkness and pandemonium, yet to everyone else she seemed calm, studious, and reserved. Melanie simply couldn't believe that. Of all the people who knew Sinadu, nobody could have seen her breakdown coming. She interviewed countless students, including Sinadu's classmates, Tring's close friends, and members of the African Students Association. Nobody in America seemed to know anything about the quiet girl who transformed into a murderer, seemingly overnight. There was one name, however, that people kept mentioning, Neb Talahun. He was by all available accounts Sinadu's closest friend, but he'd flown back to his home of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, nearly a month prior, and Melanie had no way to contact him. She wrote him a letter and requested that the Harvard Registrar's office forward it to his address, but she doubted they would actually send it. Unsure what else to do, Melanie boarded a plane to Ethiopia, hoping against hope she could uncover more about Sinadu's past once she arrived. After an 18-hour flight, Melanie landed in Addis Ababa. She soon found that just like in America, wild rumors about the murder-suicide abounded. After Sinadu's death and autopsy, her body was flown back home so her funeral could be held near her family. According to Ethiopian custom, people who commit suicide are not supposed to be given Christian burials. Yet Sinadu's service was conducted by a priest likely because people wanted to see Sinadu as a victim of evil forces, not as a perpetrator of unimaginable violence. The possibility that Sinadu had been possessed by evil appeared to be the prevailing hypothesis in Ethiopia. With the information Melanie had already gathered, she knew a much more plausible explanation was that Sinadu had been suffering from a severe mental illness the exact nature of which was impossible to diagnose post-mortem. 
Sinidu's journals revealed clear signs of chronic depression, but it was also possible that she experienced manic episodes or was trying to manage an undiagnosed personality disorder. Melanie knew if she ever wanted to get to the bottom of Sinidu's psychology, she was going to need to speak to the people who knew her best. Luckily, Harvard had indeed forwarded her letter to Neb Talahun, and he contacted Melanie a few days after she arrived in Ethiopia. Near the end of June 1995, the pair met up at a pizza parlor in Addis Ababa. Neb said that Sinidu was the most rational and least emotional person he knew. When Melanie asked if Sinidu had been happy, Neb responded, happiness is not an Ethiopian value. Ethiopians are supposed to be responsible. That is the highest value. Sinidu took this sense of responsibility to a higher degree. She went to great lengths to conceal her loneliness. Ultimately, Neb suggested that Melanie speak to Sinidu's parents. They might be able to offer more insight into her childhood. Melanie's stomach twisted as she picked up her phone. She couldn't shake the feeling that she was being invasive, multiplying the family's grief by prying into Sinidu's past. But she felt she needed to get to the bottom of the tragedy. Tring's family needed closure and Harvard needed to be held accountable. She took a breath and dialed the Tedessa family home. Sinidu's mother answered the call. Melanie introduced herself and said she'd like to ask a few questions about Sinidu, but Mrs. Tedessa clearly didn't want to talk. Melanie suggested they discuss Sinidu's life instead of her death, but all Mrs. Tedessa said before slamming down the phone was, my daughter did not do that. She was envied. Melanie put down the receiver, stunned. She had anticipated a conversation with Sinidu's parents about their daughter's mental health, not one in which they denied her crime altogether. The way their grief manifested itself was baffling. Sinidu's family may have been dealing with what Dr. Pauline Boss, a professor of social sciences at the University of Minnesota terms, ambiguous loss. According to Dr. Boss, losses that are unclear and defy closure can be difficult to process. The most common example of this phenomenon is in the case of a permanently missing person. Unsure whether their loved one is dead or alive, the family's grief remains in a state of limbo. By most people's standards, Sinidu's suicide and the murder she committed prior to it was not ambiguous. According to Dr. Boss, however, there are also times when a situation of loss has been validated officially and by the community, but some family members continue to ignore those facts. For various reasons, they prefer that the situation stays ambiguous. For Sinadu's mother, it may have been easier to convince herself that her daughter was innocent than to face the reality of the crime. Choosing to keep the loss unclear meant she could keep a confident, smiling image of Sinidu alive while denying the existence of the depressed, violent version of her daughter. But after flying all the way to Ethiopia, Melanie wasn't going to be deterred. She set up a meeting with Sinidu's father, hoping he could offer better insight into the young woman's psyche. Before Melanie even had the chance to ask a question, however, Mr. Tedessa told her, 
I don't care what a hundred police detectives or a thousand psychologists tell me. I know my daughter did not commit these crimes. My daughter has been framed and murdered. The adamant denials from Sinadu's parents seemed like a dead end. The more Melanie thought about it, however, the more she understood that Sinadu's psychological struggles must have been influenced by this kind of detachment. In her three years at Harvard, Sinadu only visited home once and rarely spoke to her parents on the phone. Mr. and Mrs. Tedessa interpreted their daughter's relative silence as a sign that everything at Harvard was going smoothly, not that their daughter was isolated, depressed, and angry. Indeed, Sinadu's journals point to this isolation as a major source of emotional and psychological pain. In one passage, Sinadu wrote, I don't understand what people mean by the warmth of a family. I grew up feeling lonely and cold. My parents never involved themselves in our emotional world. They acted as if emotions did not exist. These feelings could have influenced her later depression. According to a 2015 study headed by Dr. Jamie Hansen, a psychologist and neuroscientist at Duke University, brain structure can literally change after experiencing emotional neglect. Still, Melanie didn't think this was a complete explanation for Sinadu's violence. After all, Sinadu had four siblings who grew up in the same home, and none of them had turned violent. Melanie flew back to the States feeling defeated. Harvard's dean of admissions had been right. Everyone was looking for a villain, but all roads led back to the same essential truth. Sinadu was mentally ill and suffered so quietly that few people, if any, knew the true extent of her depression and psychotic rage. It seemed like ambiguous loss writ large. Harvard students and staff couldn't find closure because the murder-suicide defied explanation. The question of whether or not the crime could have been prevented was unanswerable. The only sure thing was that two young women were dead, but across the ocean, while Sinadu's parents denied the truth, Tring's family couldn't escape it. Up next, Tring's family and friends try to come to terms with their loss. Now, back to the story. Following a 1995 murder-suicide at Harvard University, a nationwide debate erupted about who bore responsibility for the crime. 19-year-old Sinadu Tedessa stabbed her roommate, 20-year-old Trang Ho, 45 times, yet she was rarely referred to as a murderer. Instead, media outlets cast Sinadu as a victim of mental illness. They often placed the bulk of the blame on Harvard instead, which had failed to intervene to protect Trang from Sinadu or Sinadu from herself. Though university officials tried to absolve the institution, Work by Melanie Thernstrom and numerous other journalists uncovered the vital failings of the school's mental health service. In response to public pressure, Dean Harry Lewis instituted several policy changes. He bolstered training for dormitory tutors, tripled the size of Harvard's counseling staff, and improved the University Health Service's student outreach program. Over the next year, most of the publicity died down, 
but some people still believe that Harvard shouldn't be held accountable for Sinadu's actions at all. One letter to the editors, anonymously published in the Crimson four months after the murder-suicide, pointed out that if Sinadu had lived, she would have been vilified. Americans would be waiting to see whether she got life in prison or the death penalty, not arguing about Harvard's culpability. Others saw it differently. Speaking to Melanie a year after the murder, Trang's older sister said that a part of her was angry at Sinadu, but another part of her felt sorry for her. Maybe, Trang's sister said, Sinadu really did need help, and there was nobody there for her. On the one-year anniversary of Trang's death, a Buddha ceremony was held at her gravesite in Cambridge. Since then, Trang's parents have both expressed confusion surrounding their daughter's death. They thought they had done everything right. They brought their family to America and sent their daughter to the best school in the country. It didn't make sense for Trang to have died in a place that was so magical, so revered. On days when she could bring herself to get out of bed, Trang's mother often went to Cambridge and walked in circles around Harvard, remembering her daughter in solitude. Since the publication of Melanie Thernstrom's book, Halfway Heaven, in 1997, Trang's mother has chosen not to speak to journalists about her daughter's death. Two years after the crime, Tao had still yet to totally recover from her stab wounds. She underwent multiple operations and eventually had a skin graft on her hand to heal the damage. Tao opened her eyes, her vision slowly sharpening as she took stock of her surroundings. The machine next to her beeped steadily. An ivy dripped clear liquid into her arm. It felt like no time had passed since the doctors took her into surgery. It felt like no time had passed since that morning two years earlier in Dunster House. She had relived the scene countless times in her mind. Although she knew the encounter couldn't have lasted more than a few seconds, in her memory, she wrestled with Sinadu for what felt like hours. She looked at her hand where the doctors had sewn in skin from her thigh. The graft was purplish and clearly out of place. It didn't bother Tao. The scar was a luxury that came with living. Trang had no scars, not anymore. Marks like these would be a constant reminder for Tao of her best friend. Speaking to Melanie shortly before the publication of Halfway Heaven, Tao said she was still haunted by the fact that she couldn't do more to save Trang's life. For months afterwards, she had dreams in which Trang was angry with her for not stopping Sinadu's attack. According to psychologist Dr. Joshua Black, dreams in which grieving individuals see those they have recently lost are experienced by around half of the bereaved population. In his thesis, he points to other psychologists' theories on dreams, such as Sigmund Freud's belief that dreams allow the unconscious expression of repressed wishes and conflicts, and Rosalind Cartwright's hypothesis that dreams assist in problem-solving. In contrast to Freud and Cartwright's emphasis on dreams themselves, Dr. Black focused on the effect that remembering a dream during waking life can have, for some people, dreaming of their lost loved one can be symbolic of a continuing bond with the deceased. Dreams can then become a kind of visitation, 
and the memory of the dream can be as vivid as memories of their lost loved one in life. The problem is, however, these visitations are not always positive. For Tao, dreaming of Trang's anger amplified her waking feelings of regret and guilt. It took months before Tao finally had a positive dream, one in which Trang approached her from behind and hugged her tightly. Tao believed this meant that Trang in heaven had finally forgiven her. But though Tao was finally coming to peace with the loss of her best friend, she and Trang's family had yet to forgive the university for its role in the violence. In 1998, the Ho family brought a lawsuit against Harvard, which charged three Dunster House officials with negligence. The suit was settled before reaching a judge or jury. In 2000, on the five-year anniversary of the crime, the Crimson published an article detailing the continued trouble Harvard students had getting mental health care on campus. The article did note some positive changes the school had instituted since the attack, but many worried the university was still in danger of repeating its heartbreaking history. Hopefully, tragedies like the deaths of Sinadu Tedessa and Trang Ho can be avoided in the future by listening more closely to those who cry out for help. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Sinadu Tedessa and Trang Ho, amongst the many sources we used, we found Halfway Heaven, Diary of a Harvard Murder by Melanie Thernstrom extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Crimes of Passion, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. And Parcasters, be sure to follow the newest Spotify original from Parcast, Blind Dating. It's a fun twist on a classic setup where hopeful singles choose their match based on personality, not looks. That is, until the very end. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.